Okay, let's um, just bow our hearts, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be able to meet in freedom and to study together as we can this morning. Uh, And Lord, as we come together, we just ask for your blessing upon this time. We ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of your word, to your judgments, your statutes, your precepts. Help us to understand the things that we look at and read. Um, And Lord, again, not just head knowledge, we want to really know this in our hearts, and our minds, Lord, to apply these things to our lives. Lord, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as your word says we should. And so we just give you this time. Speak to us, we pray. Minister to us now through your Holy Spirit. And give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are our penultimate session of Psalm 119. I've just been thoroughly blessed personally going through this um, and I, I know one thing for sure and that is that I've not done a, a, as good a job as I'd like to have done as communicating to you um, just some of the incredible things that are underlying this psalm. Um, you know, next week we're going to do the, the last little section, the last eight verses um, and we'll have a kind, of a, a kind of a review in a sense of some of the things we've covered. But again, let me just, just try and outline what we've got here is a journey. It's a walk a growing in our life with the Lord. And the psalmist has grown as he's gone through each section. We see the beginning of the psalm, a struggling with the flesh life. Then as it goes on, it's struggling with persecutors and people externally that would mock us because we believe, that would try and trip us up and cause us to, to lose our focus. But in all of that, there's this growing. There's this putting, it's putting our trust in the Lord. And actually, this morning, we're going to get to the conclusion of the psalm. I don't mean the last verse, I mean the conclusion of the, the theme. Because what we see next week really is more of a kind of a postscript uh, on the end. Now, we've said already, each of the Hebrew letters that starts each of the eight verses in each section uh, has a meaning. Um, the section we're in, starting at verse 153, is the Hebrew letter Reish. It just means basically head or it indicates that which is leading or comes first. Well, it's no surprise then to, to find that the theme of these eight verses that we're going to look at first this morning is all about salvation. That's the primary thing. That's what it's all about. You know, walking the walk of faith is part of that joy of growing as a Christian. It's also part of our calling. It's not an, an optional uh, thing. It's something that we are mandated to do, that we should be transformed and changed, and we should be living a life worthy of the calling that we're called in, as Paul tells us. But the primary thing is about salvation. Let me just read to you a comment by Spurgeon. He says, In this section, the psalmist seems to draw still nearer to God in prayer. Now, if you remember, the last section was all about prayer. He says, and to state his cause and to invoke the divine help with more of boldness and expectation. It is a pleading passage, and the key word of it is consider. With much boldness he pleads his intimate union with the Lord's cause as a reason why he should be aided. The special aid that he seeks is personal quickening for which he cries to the Lord again and again. You know, and that's again, this, this, all through this psalm, we've been seeing that word occur about quickening, making us alive. And, and the reality is many Christians are spiritually dead. Many Christians are, you know, I don't mean that in the, they're not being born by the Spirit, but they're just, they're not growing, they're just stagnant in their faith and their walk with the Lord. They're unresponsive to spiritual things. They don't get excited by the things of God. We'll talk more about some of those things in a while. 
But at yeah, first glance, if you just to read through this section, you know, and as we looked at it a moment ago, it almost seems to be that the psalmist is returning to that kind of despondency and the pain that he's spoken of previously, the things he was wrestling with. And, and it may be the case. That, that may be what was going on in his life at this particular time as these words are penned, as he's thinking about the troubles. You know, the, the reality is that we can all suffer a spiritual relapse. You know, one of the, the, the good things should be that as we grow in grace in our knowledge of the Lord, that although those things will happen, although there will be times when we will stumble, it should hopefully be a much shorter period of time every time. You know, if we do stumble, if we're out of fellowship with, with God, immediately we want to set the record straight. Immediately we want to go and confess our sins, knowing that he's faithful and just and will forgive us from all unrighteousness. You know, there may be in times when we were younger in our walk with the Lord, that sometimes sin came and settled and it rested there for a day or a week or a month or a season. And, you know, and that could have been a lust, it could have been bitterness, it could have been resentment or anger. It could have been all, all sorts of different things and each of us have different things that we've struggled with. But as we grow in grace, those seasons again should get much so shorter as we, we come to that place of just realizing our emptiness without God as the center of our lives. So maybe it, the psalmist is just having that kind of moment and he's realizing again because of maybe sin, maybe other external pressures, just how much he's dependent upon God's grace. But I think there's something more here because I, I think as we look at this, there's a very uh, different aspect of this than we've seen before that there's hope here there's an anticipation an expectation if you will that though his prayers that he's been praying and particularly that last section sade that that section from 100 sorry from 100 sorry uh, Kof, sorry 145 to 152 those verses all that prayer has kind of reminded him of the troubles that he previously experienced i think that there's this uh, idea very much what paul speaks about in second corinthians that we're moving on and there is ahead of us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with those things. You know, the reality of course always is that if we do ever take our eyes off Jesus, just like Simon Peter, we sink. You know, as he stepped out onto the water, he's looking at Jesus and he's sustained. But again, I think that this is more than just a, a relapse. I think this is the psalmist here realizing what he has now is so much better and stronger. Let's look at the the verses. 153 says, Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Now, I think that there's not just a, a cry here for God to consider his affliction. I think in his own heart, as he's growing, he's starting to consider his own affliction. And he cries out to God to deliver me, for he, he realizes already, and we should, of course, be at that stage of knowing that it's only God that can deliver us, not our own efforts, not our own works, not my making some sort of resolution, determined effort to, to get it right next time. That won't work. I, I've been there, I've tried that, it doesn't work. And he goes on, for I do not forget thy law. You know, I think that because of the prayers that he'd been praying, because he'd been drawing near to God, he'd been made to consider his condition and had been prompted to pray for it. You know, and you may be at the moment in a good place spiritually, and I hope and pray you are. But never rest and assume that that is going to be the way it will be in the morning, or on Tuesday, or on Wednesday this week. You know, we continually need to be going back to the Lord and asking for more grace. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because he says, consider my affliction. Obviously, it is a, a prayer to God. But if we think it through, we don't have to ask God to consider our affliction. He knows all things. I mean, he's the one that's stirred the heart of the psalmist here to pray this in the first place. He's the one that stirs our hearts to pray these things. But of course, God wants us to pray these things out of habit. And sometimes the Lord will remind us of our predicament, remind us of of things that, that have troubled us in the past, so that we continue to keep going back to him. Why? Well, because God wants fellowship with us. God wants us to keep coming back to him time again. You know, I've said this before, and I, mean, I hope you don't think this is cruel of me, but we've got two cats, and some of you have seen Ali and Monty. Now, I quite like it when I get to feed them, because a lot of the time, you know what cats are like, they're not really interested, you're living in their house really. Um, but when, when it comes to, to time to feed them, they're kind of, they're all around you, and they want cuddles, and you know, they like to be stroked. And So sometimes I'll, I'll get the food out, and they know they're about to be fed, but then I'll just wait for a minute, and I'll, I'll let them come up, and I'll stroke them, and you know, things. And I just kind of like that, that, that moment. I think God sometimes also allows us to get in that place where we're needy, where we want something. Because it's often then that we are are most attentive to him, we're looking to him. Now the reality is that our relationship shouldn't be such that we only go to God when we want things, but the truth is for a lot of us that's the case. We've got to get past that though, to a continual relationship. You see, we've got to make this important step. To go in our journeying from just our our, our predicament on our knees to his throne and then be reminded that we could keep doing that. That should be the the habit of our life. Again, as I said, the the letter Reish means head. It's what comes first. In a sense, the first step we have to take is being honest enough to consider the mess that we've made of our own lives. You know, that's the first step in, in a sense, in the way and path for us towards salvation. We have to be aware of our own need. We have to cry out for a saviour. That's the reason we're told the law was given. The law was given to confine all under sin. It was to show that we're sinners. It's to show that we needed a saviour. You know, we're not going to cry out to be delivered until we acknowledge our bondage to, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4, the weak and the beggarly elements of this world. Those were the things that once held us. So it's good that we consider our situation and cry out to God. That's the first step, in a sense, in our journey towards being saved in the first place. But it's a continual thing that we need to keep going back to the Lord. Verse 154, plead my cause and deliver me. Quicken me according to thy word. Now, as we noted in the previous section again, the psalmist prayer, as should always be ours, was to be made alive, quicken again. Yeah, and why should we settle for anything less? We, we've been bought and purchased by God. So why shouldn't we cry out to be made, not just as we said last time, alive, but really alive? That abundant life that Jesus spoke about in John 10. That's there for us. We, we should want it. The, the opening of this psalm again. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. That's the way it should be for us. We should want to and strive after those blessings, that double blessing. Now, I think the psalmist here is highlighting that there's a progression. Firstly, God must be on our side, which he is. Secondly, he must deliver us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then we'll come to that place of knowing that life in abundance. Now, we know that God is on our side. He's demonstrated his love for us in that while we'll be yet sinners... Christ died for us, Romans 5 verse 8. And we're now in that process of being delivered from the present evil age. And that's the work of sanctification that God has undertaken. 
And ultimately, we will be made truly alive when this corruption puts on incorruption. This mortal puts on immortality again, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, this verse is interesting because in a sense, what we've got here is the whole of the gospel. Just, just summarized very neatly for us in this one verse. Yeah, we were sinners. God, by his grace, made us aware of that. We were redeemed and we will be renewed. And again, the the theme carries on, verse 155. As he's starting to think through these concepts, salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. He's thinking of his own position, his own salvation that he's been given so freely. And then his mind goes to the wicked. He says, salvation is far from them. I have it. This is something I've been given by God's grace. It says, for they seek not thy statutes. And, and I guess there's an element here that he considers what it would have been like if he'd have carried on on his own path and rejected God's grace. You know, the destiny of the, the wicked is a, a chilling prospect. Let me just stop for a moment and consider what will be their end by their rejecting of God and his law and his word. Spurgeon makes this comment. He says, every step they have taken in the path of evil has removed them further from the kingdom of grace. They go from one degree of hardness to another till their hearts become as stone. When they fall into trouble, it will be irredeemable. Thank you very much for that. Irredeemable. (laughs) Yet they talk big, as if they either needed no salvation or could save themselves whenever they, 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 their fancy turned that way. Yeah, that, that is the way it is. That the, Every step that the ungodly take is a step further away from God. Uh, and you see with the likes of Pharaoh in Scripture how he hardened his heart. And God confirmed his heart in the state that it was in. You know, it's not that God made Pharaoh disobey. Pharaoh chose to go his way, and God said, okay, well then you can have it that way. It's a real chilling thought that there are people that genuinely do not want anything to do with God. Verse 156, Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. And once again, this being made alive, quicken me, make me alive, Lord, according to thy judgments. Again, the basis for this is never our ability. It's never because we've got something we can bring. It's because of what God does. It's according to his judgments. He says, great are thy tender mercies. And you see the progression because we're looking at, he's thinking of his own salvation. Then he considers what it's like for those that have rejected God. And now he's in that place again of just being reminded how great God's mercies really are. That you and I have been saved. You know, if you were God and you could choose those who would be saved, would you have chosen yourself? Knowing what you're like, knowing what your heart's like. Well, we praise God that he's infinitely wiser and greater than we are. And God has given, of course, each one of us that that free will, and yet he's still sovereign. He has predestined those who are to be saved, and yet we have the choice. That's the, the paradox that because we're stuck in time, we don't really fully comprehend. But what mercy? What mercy that even this morning we can meet together and study his word. You know, the world out there is busy doing what it's doing and expecting tomorrow to be the same as today, but there's going to come a day that tomorrow won't be the same as today. There's going to come a day when suddenly millions of Christians around the world are going to disappear. There's going to come a day when a world leader will arise. He's going to confirm a a covenant 
with Israel and the surrounding nations. We're going to see a time of war, a time of famine, earthquakes like we've never seen before. Pestilence is sweeping the world. And people are actually going to be so frightened they're going to be hiding in holes in the ground and trying to hide from God. Tomorrow isn't going to be like today. What a, a mercy it is that God has, by his grace, called us, reached out to us. You know, I think in this verse 156, there's that recognition of just how close his path had been to that of the wicked. Yeah, and I think therefore his joy in salvation he'd been freely given was that much sweeter. I was reminded of the account in Luke 7, speaking of the uh, the woman that Jesus had dined with and the Pharisees were very upset about. But he says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But whom let us forgive her, the same loves little. Well, well, I mean, he's crying out this this praise to God because he recognizes how much he's been forgiven. Verse 157 carries on. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from my testimonies. You know, and this is always going to be the case until we're removed from this this world. You know, either through death or if the Lord tarry, if the Lord tarries, or or at the time of the rapture, there always are going to be persecutors. There will be those that will set themselves up as our enemies. But notice here that even though he had many persecutors, he did not let it pull his heart from God's testimonies. Now, I don't know about you, in my own walk, in my own experience, there's been times when things have been difficult. It could be sometimes through persecution. But, you know, the devil's very crafty because we tend to think of persecution in the form of maybe somebody coming and banging on our door and, and, and telling us we can't speak about Jesus or whatever, however we would wrap that up. Because we, we're not really very familiar with persecution. Not in this country. But, you know, the devil will use all sorts of things to try and oppress us. And his intent in all of that is to get our focus off of Jesus. To get our focus onto the problem and what are we going to do to solve the problem? Well, the psalmist is saying, you know, many are my persecutors and mine enemies. Yet I do not decline from my testimonies. You know, he's got to a place now where he's not gonna be deceived, led astray by those things. You know, sometimes we can end up in a, in a just a bit of a bad mood after the day, whatever the day's brought. You know, those are the times we need to go back to God's word. They're the times we need to go back to God and put God first. Now, I said to you before, I think, that you know, a lot of the, the background and the basis for, the, for my love of this psalm came from my gran. And she always used to tell me, you know, that if I you know, had a tough day and at the time I was at school, she said, if you had a bad day at school, come home and just shut yourself in your room and praise God. And it was just kind of, it's so counterintuitive. But you praise God and suddenly you see things from God's perspective. Everything changes. You know, and there's almost a, a delight in 100, verse 157. Many of my persecutors are my enemies. Yeah, there's loads of them, but you know what? I don't decline from God's testimonies. We were singing this morning about that solid rock upon which we stand. Verse 158 carries on. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. Now notice the change, because he's not now calling for judgment upon them. That has happened, and we've seen that through the psalm. But he's got to the place, 
Because of his own security now, he's now looking from a different perspective. It's as if he's looking from the top of the hill and he's looking down. And he's grieved. He's just sad for them. I beheld the transgressors. These are the same transgressors that were laying snares for him that we've read about already. That have forged lies against him. And he's looking at them and he's grieved. He says, because they kept not thy word. And it's just that kind of, we've got something so wonderful. You know, reminded, reminded again of that situation in the book of Kings when Jerusalem had been laid and held siege by the Syrian army. And they were all held up and there's these four lepers and they went out of the camp. Because they said, let's just surrender ourselves to the Syrians. They might kill us, but we're going to die anyway. Let's just go. They get to the camp and the Syrians have all fled. As they start feasting, they enjoy themselves. But then one of them says, you know, hang on a minute. This isn't a good thing we're doing. Because we need to go and tell the king's household. We need to go and, and let them know that there's this abundance. Yeah, that's us. That, we, we are just like those lepers. Leprosy actually speaks of that incurable disease. Well, we had it. It was sin and we've been cured of it. Praise God. But we've been given this abundance because we've got God's word. And we surely we have to be just a little grieved as we look at this world that rejects God's word, that doesn't realize the wonderful truths. You know, we've seen already, I mean, so many things have been told us of God's word. Um, but back in verse, um, well, really starting from the section of 90, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law, it's my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation, and I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. You know, people running around this world trying to understand things, trying to figure out life. Well, we've got it, we've got the book of life. The Lamb's book of life, I believe. And we have just so much resource and blessing available. Verse 159, consider how... I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. So again, that the, the, it's almost as if now we just kind of turn our eyes away from those, the wicked, the transgressors, those that have just been thinking about. And it's now eyes back on the Lord. Consider, Lord, how I love thy precepts. Now, this isn't a, a call to God because of the works that I've done. This isn't saying, Lord, consider how much I've done for you. It's just simply, Lord, consider how I love thy precepts. And because of that, quicken me. Again, according, not to my effort, my work, but according to thy loving kindness. The only reason we can go to God and plead with God on any basis is because of his kindness, of his grace, of his mercy. You know, he's pleading here for more life, that he might know more love. And in verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endures forever. I mean, this this psalm really is just this wonderful love story about the psalmist growing in his understanding of God's word. But again, he says that your word is true from the beginning. There are many critics' hammers, as has been said before, have been worn out on the anvil of God's word. Yet we've already noted in our comments back in verse 89 God's word is just that. It's God's word. It's, just, it's forever established in heaven. It's not an elaborate contrivance of man. It's beyond the scope of anything that man can accomplish. And we know that the Bible spans all of time and eternity. The Bible says of itself that, that God tells the end from the beginning. 
you know, end the game with such clarity that only the hardest of critics, once they've been confronted with the facts, can ever conclude that this is merely just a religious book. I mean, this is way more than just a book with some historical and religious content. I mean, the Bible says of itself that it is living and powerful in Hebrews 4.12. And here again, it's affirmed that it is true from the very first page. The word is true from the beginning, from the beginning of time, from the opening page of the Bible, whichever way you want to count that as beginning. From Genesis 1.1 through to Revelation 22.21, it's true. This is God's word. You know, God did create the heavens and the earth. We're not the product of time and chance. It wasn't nothing exploding and becoming everything. There was a beginning, and we know that there was a beginner. And of course, man is not the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. He's God's masterpiece. Man is fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, great minds have tried to concoct theories and stories of how life evolved. In so doing, they've had to twist and bend even the laws of science to try and make their ideas fit the observable facts. It's just what Romans 12, sorry, Romans 1 verse 22 says, that professing to be wise, they've become as fools. We know that things only ever reproduce after their own kind. It's just what God's word said in the beginning. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. There is no lie or deceit to be found in the word of God. God isn't trying to deceive us or cajole us as to something. It's, this is truth. And again, the Bible's been shown to be true in regard to the history that's recorded in its pages. Archaeology has repeatedly been confirmed. It's historicity and accuracy. And again, we're indebted to many scholars through the ages that have helped us to understand these things. Not that we had any doubt of the word of God, but, you know, there's so many things that have been discovered. You know, Bill Cooper's books have been a great inspiration as he's just shown historically the things that the Bible has said are absolutely true and that the critics were absolutely wrong. You know, the Bible also has been shown to be true in regard to the prophecies that make up about a third of its contents. You know, the prophecies in the Bible speak with accuracy about things that would take place hundreds and even thousands of years after the time the prophecy was given. There are just so many prophecies. I mean, not least the prophecies regarding Israel as a nation. You know, but the Bible also speaks with clarity about where we've come from, where we're going, and it speaks with authority about right now. And this is what most people really find most challenging because it speaks the truth about our lives. It it confronts us with the problem of sin. And it presents to us God's perfect plan of salvation through Jesus. All of this is true. And the reason so many reject the Bible is not because of the evidence. I've had conversations with people and I've taken them through loads of compelling evidences. And their conclusion is, oh, that's interesting. They don't doubt it, they don't deny it. But it hasn't changed their hearts. I find it very interesting when we look in 1 Corinthians. I want to just turn to the opening of uh, Corinthians with me. I find it interesting. Paul, back in Acts 17, he arrives by, with the uh, Athens and he confronts and speaks to the Greek philosophers. And, and he's presenting to them the... Well, he's arguing with the philosophers of the day. He, he does a good job in 1 Corinthians Chapter 2. Chapter 1, he just speaks about the wisdom of this world. And it's interesting because he, he'd gone to Corinth from Athens. So he'd been in Athens, debating with the philosophers, you know, the intellectual 
minds of the day. It's the place where Plato, Socrates, all these great people have come from. It's where the, the universities were starting to spring up. Academia of the day was all based there. And Paul debates with these people and speaks to them about the resurrection of Jesus. But he presents facts to them and argues and reasons with them from the scriptures. But then he gets to Corinth. It seems that he's had a little bit of time on his journey down from Athens down to Corinth just to to mull over these things. And chapter 1 he speaks about the foolishness of the world. And chapter 2 begins and says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or with wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Because we can present all the facts in the world to people and it will still not change their hearts. What is the gospel? Well, Paul tells us what the gospel is at the beginning of chapter 15 of Corinthians. He says, verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. It's so simple that Christ died for our sins. We were sinners. We needed a saviour. And he died. That he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. And Paul goes on to make the point that actually the resurrection is the basis of our faith. Now God has given us the evidence. God has given us so much proof that it's hard to try and categorize it. There's so many ways that we could look at scripture and say that the Bible is true. And as I say, we are indebted to, to many great scholars. Robert Dick Wilson, a chap we've mentioned a number of times in the past, incredible individual, learned so many ancient languages and did this incredible study of the Old Testament, concluding that every single page is trustworthy. We can rely on every letter in the Old Testament. So, so the issue is never about evidence. It's about the heart. That's where the, the real problem lies. But he says again that thy word is true from the beginning. We have no need to doubt any of it. And every one of thy righteous judgments, notice, endures forever. Spurgeon says again, the Lord has nothing to regret or to retract, nothing to amend or to reverse. All God's judgments, decrees, commands and purposes are righteous. And as righteous things are lasting things. Every one of them will outlive the stars. Till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Lord till all be fulfilled. God's justice endures forever. This is a cheering thought. There is a much sweeter one. Which of old was the song of the priests in the temple. Let it be ours. His mercy endures forever. Yeah, all of his judgments, all of the things that God has decreed, they all endure forever, but also his mercy endures forever. Let's move on to the next section then. And this really, to summarize, I would say it's all about obedience. The theme here, the underlying theme is one of obedience. The word um, sheen in the Hebrew, it actually has a meaning of tooth, uh, or, or in the sense of something that's sharp. It's also used of swords or arrows or sharpening or the sharpness of one's tongue or the sharpness of one's mind. And maybe that's the more applicable way to see it in regard to this because it's almost as if righteous indignation toward the ungodly uh, would be the best uh, way to describe the psalmist's attitude as we move into this penultimate section now. You know, the psalmist is finally coming to the place where nothing will move him. I was reminded of Acts 20.24. You know, Paul says, nothing will move me. Yeah? And the psalmist, in this, as we come to the conclusion of the journey, 
It's as if nothing, not, not, not his own life, the, the, the problems that he'd experienced in his own flesh, or the wicked, the proud, none of those things were going to move him anymore. His mind has been sharpened by the word of God. And he's thinking clearly now. And of course that is one of the, the principal effects of God's word, that is it helps us to see and think clearly. Uh, it's in just foggies the mind, doesn't it? Is that a word? Can I use that? Foggies? You know what I mean. But God's word just brings clarity. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It helps us to see things from a heavenly perspective. So let's jump in. Verse 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of thy truth. Let me just present you again. I think this section is like our conclusion of our journey. You know, we've, we've likened the journey to kind of climbing up a rock face. And it, all the while, it's been trying to get a sure footing and move on to that next level, getting to a plateau and going a little higher still. It's like we've got to the top now. And he says, princes have persecuted me. I mean, these are the highest class, the most respected people have persecuted him. Now you think of, of David, and again, we, we, David is almost certainly the author, although not specifically stated. But David had princes, even his own family, persecute him. And very often it was without a cause. Other people, other nations. The Queen of Sheba came to Solomon to try and trip him up. You know, people of stature, of understanding, often try and speak down to those that they consider lower than themselves. But the psalmist says, you know, look, princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of thy word. You know, it's almost, it's so insignificant what the world would say and do. Because if we have got to this place that our heart is now standing in awe of God's word. And again, we have to look in context. All of the things that the psalmist has learnt about God's word, all this amassed knowledge, he's now saying, my heart stands in awe of God's word. At the beginning of the journey, I hope we had this kind of you know, appreciation and love for God's word. But now, as we've come to the end of this journey, I hope that you have such a deep passion for God's word. This is where the psalmist has got to. You know, if, if not, go back and retrace the steps. Look at the things that the psalmist specifically says about God's word. And meditate on them. Allow God to speak to you about each of them. You know, this is a, a treasure that will not only uphold me, as we've seen a number of times, uphold me according to thy word and so on, but it, it will also keep us standing. And again, notice it's not his soul that is now standing, but his heart. It's only a subtle thing, but I think it's a very beautiful thing. It's not just that intellectually he's come to the place of kind of lining everything up and making it nice and neat and tidy. He's come to a place where in his heart he wants God. I remember hearing some years ago, um, Dave Hunt speaking. Some of you remember Dave Hunt, wonderful man of God, great apologist, just defending the word and speaking truth. And he was asked once about sin. There was a specific question um, but it was like, Dave, why don't you struggle with that? And it kind of, Dave, it, it kind of stopped him in his tracks. And his response was, because I love God more. And it was such a beautiful simplicity. It was almost, he was almost indignant at the question. But it was just, but God, why, why would I want to consider that when I have this? That's what the psalmist is saying, you know, whatever else, I've got God's word. And I'm in awe of God's word. I'm only just starting to understand God's word. 
And by the way, I'm not talking here about the details and doctrines and those kind of things. This study I'm going to try and put together in a book form when I'm finished. Uh, and I've already started doing this little series going through based upon Hebrews chapter 6. And it speaks there about the elementary principles, the things that we should understand as Christians. And it speaks about judgment and various doctrinal things, resurrection, and of course raptures included with all of that. You know, it speaks really of God's whole picture and plan, and uh, speaks of baptism and other things. And, and the, the writer of the Hebrews presents it that these are the things we should get nailed down, we should understand, for one important reason, so that we can go on to perfection. That's what he says. You know, we, we shouldn't spend all of our time trying to get our heads into doctrine and understanding this and that. It's good and it's important and we should know those things. And that's why we continue studying the Bible. But the reason is that we go on to perfection. It's so that we become Christ-like. It's so that we just lose any association and attachment with this world. Uh, you, you've heard the phrase about people who become so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Uh, to be honest, it's not really true. Because if you become so heavenly minded, you'll be of enormous value to people on the earth. The problem is we've got so many people that are so earthly minded, they're of no heavenly good. You know, again, it's not his soul that's now standing, but his heart. And it's a really good thing when our heart is inclined back to God's word. Just look back in verse 112 with me. Verse 112 just says, I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes. You know, Job, there's a question asked about can that which is crooked be made straight? Well, naturally, no, it can't. But when it comes to our heart, God can do an incredible work. God can create in us a clean heart. Uh, But there is this bending. He says, I've inclined my heart to perform thy statutes. It's a bending of our, our desires and our will in line with the things of God because they've got bent out of shape as a result of sin. And now he says, princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of thy word. Verse 162, I rejoice that thy word is one that finds great spoil. In Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of a, a man who sold all that he had to purchase a field in order to obtain the treasure. That's the kind of value that he's speaking of here. That's the kind of spoil that he's talking about. Yeah, And of course, it is a, a time of rejoicing for us when we find God's word for ourselves, not just to be told of its value from parents or pastors or teachers, but to actually discover its beauty, its mysteries, its life-changing power for ourselves. It's the greatest treasure that can be found in this life. But once again, just as with salvation, it has to be found by each individual. It's not something that can just be handed down to you. You know, someone can read or they can be taught even comprehend doctrinal truths and spiritual wisdom from God's word. But that doesn't mean that the word of God is alive to them. You know, a Christian can sit in church year after year and never truly be moved by every yod and tittle. But we should be. We should get to this place of understanding what God's word really is. I love the idea of spoil here, as it's put in the King James. He says, the spoil, he says, I rejoice at thy word as one that finds great spoil. Now that immediately speaks of conflict, of battle. Those who are victorious would then go in after, and they would scourge, scour the battlefield looking for something of value. But sadly, many, even in the church, just stumble over God's word without really realizing what it is. 
Yeah, they walk on by. They see it as a, a religious book. It speaks about God's laws with stories and songs, poetry and some history. But the Bible says itself, as we said earlier, that it is living and powerful. You know, even Napoleon, the French emperor, said, the Bible is no mere book, but it is a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Chuck Misler frequently said, and again I'm indebted to Chuck for his expositional teaching over many years, he constantly stated that the Bible is an integrated message system which provably has its origin from outside our time domain. Yeah, millions are spent on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But we've got it in our midst. This is a book that is not the product of Earth. This is the product of God's heart and God's mind. And actually just getting to grips with the framework and the details and the doctrine are just the start. This is why you can take a verse in scripture and you can sit and you can meditate and you can study it. And you come back to it another day. And it's as if you've never read it because it's so much more that you suddenly discover that you didn't see last time. It's why you can read the Bible through year after year after year and every time you see things you've never seen before. Not that you haven't read it. You try that with any secular book. Just try reading a book through a couple of times. Once you've done it, you, you know what it says. It doesn't say any more than it says. But the Bible is inexhaustible because it's God's word and God still speaks through his word today. And again, I just feel the, the psalmist now almost finally made it to the top of this big rock mountain in the sense of be climbing up. And now it says, I rejoice at thy word as one that finds great spoil. It's like, I've got it, I've found it. This is what I've been looking for. And then he says, verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but thy Lord do I love. And there's almost that indignance now, that realization that, you know, I've been lied to. As, as I realize what I have in God's word, I've been lied to by my own flesh, by other people in the world. He's already stated in verse 113 that he hated vain thoughts. But now that he's taken up another notch. He says, you know, effectively, it bores any form of deception. You know, and we've all been victims of deception. We've been de- deceived by worldly wisdom. But we've also been deceived from the things that are within. That sin nature, the flesh life. But now he sees that deception for what it is when it's compared to the the brilliance and the perfection of God's law. As I said already, God's word is true. That which comes from Satan is just falsehood and deception. We're told in John 8.44 that he's a liar, that he was a father of lies, a liar from the beginning. God's word had given the psalmist and will give us the power to discern between the truth and the lies. Even if our own heart would lead us astray, we can join with the psalmist and state that we will incline, literally again, force our hearts to perform his statutes. Sadly, you know, so many Christians end up trying to suppress feelings. You know, they have desires. And, and they try and suppress those things and think that that's the right way to go forward. It's not. It's what we read in Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not God will give you what you want. So many people translate it that way. I don't believe that's what he's saying at all. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will place within you the right desires. He will give you his desires. And then it's no longer a struggle with things that 
I want to do this, but you know, I know I shouldn't. And if that's where you are, if that's where your walk with the Lord is at the moment, then realize that there is a beautiful liberty free of that bondage. And that God wants all of us who are believers to live in victory. In the beginning of Revelation, each of the churches there are promised something for the overcomers. Those that overcome. It's a crown of life promised to those that overcome temptation. For most Christians, temptation is just part of your normal daily routine. Not that you will never get tempted if you're in the right place with the Lord if you're walking by faith, but it's those temptations like this now. They just, the contrast is so vivid that it's no comparison, it's not a difficult thing to go God's way. Because again, I, I, I've seen all those things for what they are. I hate and abhor lying and deception, all those things. And the effect that they've had on me in the past. He said, but thy law do I love. Verse 164 says, Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. God's word was so precious to him that he couldn't go very long without going back to it again. Seven times a day he wanted to praise God. Seven in scripture always denotes completeness. It's our complete sacrifice of praise. It's a complete offering to a worthy God. And it's also here, I believe, the completion of the journey in this psalm. As we noted right at the start of the study, uh, you know, we should be able to meditate on God's word, and I've encouraged you, and if you, I hope you are doing it. If you're not, then start today. Just take a verse of the psalm, just one verse for the day, and read it and meditate on it. Try and do it seven times. Okay, I'll, Let me break down how that can work through the day for you. When you get up in the morning or at breakfast time, the start of the day, and then sometime mid-morning, then lunchtime, in the afternoon, when you have your evening meal, and then when you go to bed. Just meditate on God's word. You don't have to spend an hour, just a minute, one minute. Just take one verse out of this psalm each day and just read it and let God speak to you. I guarantee you, God will transform your life. You'll start to see what the psalmist is now saying. You know, all the journey that we've seen, all the struggle that he'd gone through, coming to a place now where the things of God were just so vivid and in full colour in his life. You know, I would honestly say that through my journey through this, I think, and it's no great personal discovery because so many have been there before and have commented and written on these things, but I think this is the secret to walking in the way, to walking by faith. And it is quite simply God's word. To love it, to read it, to meditate on it. And listen, reading the Bible is great, and I encourage you to do that. Try and go through the Bible every year. A really good practice to do. But in addition to that, just spend time just chewing. That's what meditating is. Animals, typically clean animals, are ones that would chew the cud. Okay, So they get the grass, they eat it, they chew it over... I think sheep have five different stomachs. I can't remember the names of each of the stomachs, but there are five different stomachs, and the food goes down to one stomach, they bring it up, they chew it over again, it goes down to another stomach, they chew it up, they bring it again, each time getting a little bit more nutrition out of it. Well, that's the same as God's Word. You know, we just want to keep just taking these things. And and once again, our our hearts and our minds become so permeated with the things of God that the things of the world have have no appeal anymore. I'll I'll be honest with you here, because... This isn't a great confession because Joy and I talk a lot about things that go on in our lives 
personally and privately. But you know, working in London, um, it's very hard to walk around unless you have your eyes shut without seeing attractive women. Okay, and particularly on the tube, um, there's a lot of uh, ladies in various straight, uh, states of dress or undress, and it's a temptation. Every every man knows that's the case. Women, you may have other things that that are a challenge. But one of the things that really prompted me back in the summer, rather than just, I got about a 10 minute tube journey, rather than just standing there waiting and then just observing things unintentionally, but you can't help but see things sometimes. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to just read God's word. So on my phone, I've just got my Bible. And I, just, I was just drawn again back to this psalm. And I, I studied this many years ago. And it was at that point I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take one verse a day. And this has started as a personal study for me, way back in May, probably May, June time. And every day I just took one verse. I personally went through this just one day at a time. And I was starting to see so much. It's got to the point now that I can't wait to get on the tube and I just look at the next verse. And I just go back over it and I read it and read it and read it. And as I said to you already, I, I, I'm trying to commit the whole of this psalm to memory. So far up to about a verse about 120. Because... What better thing to have rattling around in our minds than God's word? And it's no longer a case of, okay, don't look, don't look. It's nothing like that. It's because I'm not even thinking, I just don't want to. It's not even, it's not even part of the equation any longer. And you know, that's, we, we should all be whatever issues or struggles we have in life. God's word is the answer. The psalmist has come to that place of saying, you know, look, seven times a day, you know, I've become Addicted to God's word in the right possible way. A lot of things that become addictions that are not helpful. But this is a good thing. And so the last three verses just really sit together. Because really all, it's all coming down to obedience. This is a, a will we or won't we. God will quicken us. He will strengthen us. He will uphold us. As this psalmist told us, all according to his word. But we have to choose this day whom we will serve. And he concludes by saying here, Great peace of they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You know, again, that, what a, a contrast there to the opening sections of the psalm. You know, this transformation that's taken place, it's been a complete renewing of the mind, no longer is his soul breaking, or in finding himself cleaving to the dust, verse 25, or his soul melting in verse 28. No longer is he fearing being put to shame, verse 31 or 39. No longer are the proud constantly playing on his mind. It's what we read in Isaiah 26, 3-4. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Again, as Paul said, Acts twenty twenty four. but none of these things move me. Great peace of they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Now look at this section here. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Verse 167. My soul has kept thy testimonies and I love them exceedingly. And then verse 168. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies for all my ways are before thee. Do you remember where we started right at the beginning of the psalm? Right at the beginning of the psalm we started with this perfect standard being set by God. And we said at the time that you know, you can't, we can't utter that. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. And then he says, verse 8, I will keep thy statutes. And at the point we were like, 
we want to, but Lord, how? And now the psalmist has come to this place of saying, Lord, you've done it. You've done this work in me. I've hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. I hope for it and now you've given it to me. My soul has kept thy testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I have kept my precepts and thy testimonies for all thy ways are before me. What a rejoicing. Imagine standing before the throne in heaven when we are caught up to meet Jesus and being able to say those words. To say, Lord, I've done thy commandments. My soul has kept thy testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies for all my ways are before thee. Lord, you see it all. We can't lie to God. We can't make things up. Look, just, we, we conclude there for this morning. Next week, read ahead. Look at that last section, verse 169 through 176 to conclude the psalm. And we'll have a, there's a few comments. But all of this is about walking by faith. The New Testament speaks so much about the way we should live and and so on. But the book of, but Psalm 119 is the how-to. I'm not saying it's the only one, there's many others I'm sure in scripture that you could refer to and look at. But this is certainly a simple how-to guide from someone that has been there, that has stumbled, that has fallen, that has had the same frustrations and temptations and difficulties that we have. But simply by putting God's word as the central focus and the central thing in his life, he's come to this place now of saying, you know what Lord, I can step out, I can walk in victory. And that's what the Lord would have for all of us. Because he wants us to have this abundant life. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, as we just contemplate these things, as we try and get our heads around just this incredible gift that you have given us in your word. Oh, Lord, stir us, we pray. Father, may we be able to say with the psalmist that we love your word. And Lord, let it transform us. Lord, let it transform our thinking. Lord, may we be able to, as Job said, Lord, make a a covenant with our eyes not to look lustfully. But Lord, also may we not harbour any bitterness or anxiety or Lord, anything that would just pull us from you. Father, your word spoke of Jesus. You dealt with a, a man who was possessed by Demons, Lord, you delivered him. And you spoke of a house being swept clean. Lord, that is each of us. Our houses have been swept clean. But Lord, we need to fill the house. We need to be thoroughly furnished. And your word says of itself that it will thoroughly furnish us. It will give us all that we need for this life. So Lord, give us a hunger for your word like we've never known. A desire to read. And Lord, all of this, that we may enjoy and walk with you this abundant life. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you that you care so much about us, that you've gone to such extraordinary lengths to give us your word. So Lord, now give us the grace to read and to learn and to grow. We ask in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. May God look richly bless you through this coming week.